Well, good morning, and uh, uh, delight, delighted to open God's Word here with you this morning and to uh, enjoy communion with you. I get this morning uh, the privilege, second service, I will be uh, in Highland at our Chinese congregation uh, preaching their service on the second anniversary of uh, that ministry starting, and so I'm going to be bugging out of here as soon as uh, I can to make it to Highland for that uh, ministry. I also want to give you an update on uh, the, the fund that we announced last Sunday, uh, which we are naming after Joseph Klusterman, a fund that is for uh, children of members of our church who are terminal and as a blessing to the families. And uh, thus far, we have uh, raised $52,544 towards that. So thank you for your generosity. And again, all benevolent uh, gifts in June will go towards this particular fund. I also have an update here at Crown Point for the 9 o'clock service. Uh, we have been over these months, you know, moving and shifting and changing protocols, and we so appreciate everybody's uh, flexibility with that. Uh, next, starting next Sunday, we are going to flip this room. Okay, so currently it is orange on the floor and green in the balcony. Uh, but we've been watching the numbers and counting and, and all of that, and uh, we're at a place now where it is, makes best sense to have the balcony be orange and the floor be green. And I say that, one provision though that we are making is that we will have a section here on the floor for our seniors and uh, for wheelchair access, those that would like the orange and the balcony is a, is a trouble, we'll have a special section uh, for you on the floor to accommodate your needs as well. And we're just going to continue to go with the flow here as we uh, wrap up, we hope, uh, this season of pandemic pastoring and uh, ministry. So that'll start next Sunday here, Crown Point, 9 o'clock service. Last Sunday, we began a new series for the summer entitled Bottom Lines of the Bible. And uh, we kicked it off with Micah 6.8, uh, because Micah 6.8 gives a very just succinct statement, what does God require? And it fits well with the series, because the series, I could have called it the Bible for dummies, or uh, you know, Christianity for dummies, something like that. Uh, it's essentially what we're getting at here with the summer series, just simple basic, bottom line, memorable, boom. This is what the Lord requires. And Micah, Micah 6 certainly gave that to us last Sunday. He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. And when we do that with faith, without faith it's impossible to please God. But with faith, these things uh, bring God delight. Now, God's opinion remains our focus uh, today, because we are in the book of Proverbs, okay, Proverbs. Last Sunday, some of you looked the entire sermon for Micah. <laughs> Proverbs is easier. It's a lot bigger. comes right after Psalms. I'm giving you hints as you maybe are turning to Proverbs. Uh, but I love Proverbs. I, I, I don't know if I can say it's my favorite book, because now Romans is my favorite book. But um, Proverbs would be a close second or top five for me. Uh, I, I have three markers in my, my Bible reading Bible. I have one currently in 1 Kings, 
I have one in Psalms, which I just keep going through the Psalms, and I have one in Proverbs, uh, which I read ideally every day. I don't do it every day, but I, I am blessed every time that I, that I read the Proverbs. Proverbs is a collection of short, pithy wisdom statements, most of them written, we think, by, by King Solomon and a few others. Uh, but Proverbs is like practical wisdom for life. It speaks into all kinds of categories of life, all the basics of life, um, and is wonderfully helpful, I find, in a, in a daily sort of way to, to remind me of how to live today. And we have in Proverbs um, a guide to successful living, especially successful spiritual living. Okay, this is not, uh, uh, what, what was the Soup for the Soul book? Um, Chicken Soup for the Soul, yeah, okay, so this is, uh, that's just good ways to live and helpful things. Proverbs, the goal of the Bible is much more than to just make us uh, happy or successful. It is to align us with God, and Proverbs helps us to align the categories of our life with God's purposes and God's will, and I would encourage you to regularly read Proverbs. You will not uh, regret it. So here we are now in Proverbs chapter 6, and this chapter is super practical, Okay, super practical type of, of uh, uh, chapter. Don't co-sign loans. Don't be a sluggard. Work like an ant. Save. Prepare. And then we get into verses 12 through 16, where Solomon warns about a divisive type of person. And then you get into the actual text that we're looking at uh, today, verses 16 through 18, and Solomon warns about this by placing divisiveness in the midst of some other really terrible sins, things that we already know that God hates, and then he includes divisiveness or sowing discord amongst the brothers. So let's get into it now. I I do want to give 12 through 15 because he begins talking about this now, and he begins doing it by describing the nonverbal language of somebody who is sowing discord amongst the brethren. Look at verse 12. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. Now, there is a lot about this kind of person not to like. We haven't even got to the fact that God hates it, but just the kind of person that this is, there's a lot here not to follow. We know from Uh, from verses 16 through 19, again, his focus here is on divisiveness, Uh, the the fact that God hates it. But the collage of character faults begins in verse 16. He is worthless and wicked. His speech is crooked. And his body language is weird, okay? He winks. This indicates ulterior motives. His pointing finger comes from an evil heart. His shuffling feet, okay, this is kind of an interesting one. Apparently some things never change about people. But when you see somebody and they're kind of, you know, like this, you think, this person's not a steady person. 
I think he's up to something. And indeed, that's the point here. All his body language is indicating this is somebody not to be trusted. He's up to no good. This reminds me of my brother Scott. Uh, my brother Scott was the worst liar ever, okay? Worst liar ever. He, uh, and by the way, he's a pastor today, so kids, listen. Don't lie because God might call you to the ministry. But when he was a boy, he was a terrible liar. And the reason was that he didn't realize it, but every time he lied, he would furrow his brow like this, and then he would just lie. And he never could figure out how mom and dad knew that he was lying. But he had a nonverbal that just indicated everything that's coming out of his mouth right now is the opposite of the truth. Don't trust him when he's furrowing his eyebrows. And that's the sense of this right, uh, right now. He's describing the kind of nonverbal body language that uh, that a worthless, deceitful, sowing discord kind of person will have. It indicates that he is up to something. He's suspicious. Uh, this is somebody that TSA would pull out of the line and wand, right? Okay. His nonverbals are indicating he maybe is, uh, is up to something bad. And what Proverbs is encouraging us and Solomon is encouraging us is similarly, spiritually, wand somebody who is giving you an indication that maybe they're not up to, they're not up to good. Their nonverbals are telling you that this is somebody who is, 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 is trying to do something bad. Now, this is probably an attractive kind of person because the people that sow discord, there has to be something compelling about them, otherwise they fail miserably, nobody listens to them, nobody follows them. This is somebody probably with an attractive personality, they are compelling. But his true motive is evident by the effect of his presence. The words, the slander, the winks, the insinuations, the gossip, the result of it is that family members suddenly are not liking each other. And church members who used to get along with one another now seem to be on the outs with one another. Look out for this kind of person. And as I talk about it, I want to encourage all of us to look in the mirror because you're going to be tempted to think of other people that you know that are like this and certainly be on the lookout for it. But we want to look at our own hearts because at the end here, we're going to find out seven things that God hates. And we want to make sure that we are hating what God hates and loving what he, what he loves. Now, as we talk about the, uh, the divisive person, the danger we have is that these activities are easily normalized because they are just part of the world that we live in. Uh, they're part of the media. It's part of social media. I mean, talk about divisive language this last year. Have we had a little bit of that going on in our society? Tons of it. Like in the Ten Commandments, where you have murder, you have adultery, coveting, sins that we know that God despises, it's easy for us to miss the fact that a little salacious whispering and gossip is right there in the mix of the things that God hates. And so this is the point that he's going to make here. Look at verse 16. Okay, seven things that God hates. What does God hate? There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Here's the list. 
haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plants, feet, uh, plans, not plants, plants, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I, I have read scholars who talk about what's going on in this text that the writer is using a Hebrew grammatical device. He does it at the beginning, and he does it at the end. So the reason that he says there are six things that God hates, yea, there are seven, is that this was a Hebrew sort of way of indicating this is not an exhaustive list. There, there's more to this list than simply uh, the ones that we see here. And of course, we could easily add things that God hates to the list. Uh, we could think of idolatry and the Packers. Right? So, but the list has a very specific purpose. Okay? These are here for a reason. These are six really, really bad things that everybody acknowledges the God of heaven, he hates these six things. And this is the device now at the end. By, by having six things that we all know that God hates and then inserting one that many of us are like, I think that might be okay. It elevates the thing that is often normal and shows how God actually despises it. And I wonder how many of us would view sowing discord among the brothers on any kind of sort of plane morally with shedding innocent blood. And that, that's exactly what he is doing here. It's sort of a shocker there at the end. Gossipy, I like this sentence, gossipy, whispery, slanderous discord right there with murder. Okay. Now, let's talk about a question that comes up when you see a verse about God hating anything. I thought God was a God of love. Like, isn't he all love? Isn't he pure love? Doesn't First John say God is love? And indeed, it does say that. Uh, and we celebrate the fact that God is an incredibly loving God, that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. His love, as we saw last week, that has said that steadfast, enduring, covenantal love. There is no love in the universe like the love of God. We celebrate that. We worship God in part because of his love shown to us in Jesus Christ. But there is a mistake that you can make by assuming that since God is love, there must be nothing that he hates. And the mistake is, I think, easily understood when we understand, even in our own love, how loving something or loving someone requires us also to hate things. So, for example, the Bible talks about God as a God of love, but also that he is a jealous God. Wait, I thought jealousy was sin. Or that God hates something. I thought hatred was sin. Well, now it depends, doesn't it? It depends on what I'm jealous or what God is jealous about or what I'm jealous about or what God is hating and what, what I am hating. Should God love, for example, blasphemy of his name? Should God love Satan like he loves Jesus? Should God love sin? And I hope, theologians, your answer to all those questions is no. He cannot love those things. 
But then we're in a tough spot because if we say that God is love, he's so loving, he doesn't hate anything, it requires us to have him loving things that we know would compromise his character. So for example, if we ask the question, does a mother love her son? The answer typically to that is yes, capital Y, yes, love her son. Does she love him burning the garage down? That's so cute, the way he burnt that garage down. I just love him. <laughs> now, I say that because my own dad and his very mischievous cousin played with matches and burnt the garage to the ground. Not a great day for Grandma, okay, when that happened. She did not love it. So a mom is filled with love, But she doesn't love the nighttime intruder in the home. She doesn't love the poisonous snake by her child. Her love requires her to hate some things. Are you with me? Okay. And God's love and God's hate are like that. He so loves, he is so passionate for things that are good and beautiful and reflect his glory that he is required because of his passion for his own glory to hate anything that doesn't rise or fall short of his glory, Romans 3.23. And so the God of heaven is not just all love, no hate. He is pure love, ethically, rightly hating what does not reflect his own glory. He cannot love what is impure. He cannot love what is blasphemous. He cannot love what is morally wrong. He is ethically bound to withhold love from these things. He has to hate. Get that. God has to hate some things. And by the way, we're told to do the same thing. Romans 12, hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. God does that perfectly, okay? Now the bottom line I'm gonna get to in this passage is this, that we hate what God hates by loving what he loves, okay? We hate what God hates by loving what he loves. That's where we're going here, and we're gonna get there here in a moment. I wanna walk through these things that it says that God hates, okay? There are, there are seven listed. Five of them are, uh, are related to body parts, and he generally goes from the top down, okay? So we start now with haughty eyes. Haughty eyes. We all know the look of haughty eyes, It's the look the teenager driving his dad's midlife crisis sports car gives you at the red light, particularly if you're driving the family minivan, the 2011 gray Odyssey minivan with 140,000 miles, sticky seats in the back, and a portable child potty. Don't ask me how I know this, okay? (laughs) But that look of superiority that looks down on other people, it's what the eyes do when the heart is self-absorbed. Contrast this. Here's the foundational verse in all of Hebrews, or Hebrews, Proverbs. Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The whole, like, posture that we are to have to God is not one of haughty eyes, 
but one of treasuring and reverencing, giving weight to who God is. And that doesn't make us haughty. That doesn't give us haughty eyes. It gives us humble eyes because we see in light of who God is how small we are. Proverbs 16, verse 5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. God hates haughty eyes. A lying tongue, and I'm going to combine this with false witnesses who breathe out lies, which is another one in the list. Here's Proverbs 12. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. Okay? We obviously know that God hates deception. The ninth commandment is thou shalt not lie. God hates lying, and here's why. He is all truth. All truth. Titus 1. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, uh, lies, promised before the ages began. God doesn't lie. He cannot lie. He is all truth. He is all, 1 John, light. In him there is no darkness at all. He doesn't lie. He doesn't deceive. These are qualities that Satan has. Satan is the father of lies. The Bible says. Think about how he twisted scripture in the garden and deceived Adam and Eve. You cannot believe anything that comes out of of Satan's mouth. I read somewhere that his, his tongue is so deceptive, he talked hundreds of thousands of angels out of following God and following him. That's a forked tongue. That is that is a lying tongue. That is his nature. But it is not the nature of our God. He is all truth. And everything he says and everything he does accords with the truth of his own divine character. Therefore, God hates a lying tongue. He hates a false witness. Next in the list, hands that shed innocent blood. Why do you suppose God would hate this? And we know from the Bible it is because he values human life. Human life reflects his own divine worth and character. This is part of being made in the image of God. We find in the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. It is a prohibition against against murder, not ethical killing. How do we know that? Because there is also in the Old Testament the command, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You take someone's life, your life shall be taken. It is not murder to execute that or to punish that. It is murder when it is hands that shed innocent blood. Why does God hate it? Because violence is the opposite of love. Violence is the opposite of uh, caring for other people. Jesus takes it to this level. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, if you're angry, angry with your brother, you're murdering him in your heart. And so we see the flow of just the selfishness, the anger, the self-agenda, the violence against others, and indeed even taking their life. God loves life. He does not love the murderer. He hates it. I'm going to take two more in a, in a pair here. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run to evil. Both of these get at a kind of fascination and an imagination regarding evil things. Here's the first chapter of Proverbs. Solomon warns his son about falling in with people described as hellions. 
and their only delight is doing what displeases God. He says this in Proverbs 1, for their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. Don't run around with them. Are the middle school boys listening right now? Do not fall in with people whose heart and delight is in doing evil. Their feet run to do evil. Here's Genesis 6 before the flood. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the idea here is the person who lays on their bed and they're scheming and they're trying to come up with uh, ways to do evil. I am presently right now reading a book entitled uh, The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson. And uh, I'm, it's sort of freaking me out. It's a story of the, of, the, of, the, of the World's Fair in Chicago and how they did all of that. And there is, uh, I'm not going to ruin it in case you want to read it, but there is a, a character in, in the, the devil in the story, uh, a guy who just schemes evil and murder and terrible things. It is not a book for the faint of heart. It's kind of freaking me out. The Devil in the White City. God hates that. He hates it. His will is for us good, pleasing, and perfect. And he delights when we are scheming good things. I think about Wilberforce, William Wilberforce. We've talked about him over the years many times. Uh, the, The man most credited for ending slavery in the Western world. It is said of William Wilberforce that his imagination just constantly ran towards the creation of charities and nonprofits and, and ministries, and he started many of them, and he funded them. He just laid in bed and thought, how can I imagine to do good? And he did it out of, a, out of, a, uh, out of the gospel. He was, a, he was a Christian, and he changed England, and he changed the world. And God loves it when we scheme good things. Maybe try that, okay? I often uh, pray to God in my prayer times, God, I pray that you would bring to my mind right now anything that would be profitable and good. And I mean that like for my family. I mean it for our church family. And I just sort of open my, my imagination and, and just ask God to help me to think about and to scheme, to plan, to be creative for things that would be a blessing to people. Imagine if we all did that, and we just are all the time scheming, but we're scheming ministry, and we're scheming gospel uh, ministry. It'd be a wonderful thing. Let's do that. So those are the six things that God hates, and I I want you to see something here. I have a chart that I created about about how this works. Okay, so on the left, we have the, the, the six things, we haven't got to the seventh yet, that God hates. So haughty eyes, who is God? He's the, if anybody can have haughty eyes, it'd be God. He is the most high God. What does God love? He loves the opposite of haughty eyes. He loves humility. Lying tongue, who who is God? He's truth. What does he love? He loves truth speaking. Hand shedding blood, God is life. Value human life. Feet quick to do uh, evil. No, God is good. He delights in moral and ethical purity. False witness, God is truth. He he loves true speaking. Which brings us now to the main focus of the list, which is this last one, the divisive person that God hates. Here's how the message translates uh, this verse. 
Here are six things God hates and one more that he loathes with a passion. That's well said. Which one does he especially loathe? It's the last one. He who sows discord amongst the brothers. Okay, sows. This is an agricultural term. I always like these because I get to pastor in Indiana where most of you drove by some kind of a farm field to get here. And if you didn't, just look across the street. We have them all around us here. We kind of get agriculture. I am the son of a John Deere employee who, despite burning the barn to the ground, built tractors for barns the rest of his life. Uh, So we get agriculture a little bit. Sowing. Sowing is planting. Okay, it's the way that they would spread seeds and they would get seeds into the ground. When you drive by a field of corn, do you know who planted the seeds? No, you don't know who planted the seeds. All you see is the effect of the one who planted the seeds. And disunity is like that. Disunity in a family, disunity in a church family... We don't necessarily get to see the malcontent who's got the shifting feet and the haughty eyes uh, or or the the finger pointing, he he described him. We, We don't necessarily get to see or hear that person dropping the salacious gossip or slander. But what we do see is the effect of the sowing of the discord. Mysteriously, all of a sudden, a squabble erupts in a small group or a squabble erupts in a ministry and people that used to like, like each other, serve with one another, get along, be on the same team, all of a sudden now they're at odds with one another. People don't trust each other anymore. Now they look at each other with a jaundiced eye. One of my favorite little proverbs, it's not an actual proverb and it's not in the Bible, but it almost should be because it is so true. And if you were to work on staff here at the church, you would hear me say this often, is is this little statement, all is yellow to the jaundiced eye. All is yellow to the jaundiced eye. What is that saying? It's saying this, that once people get a jaundiced eye about another person or about a ministry or about the church or about whatever, all of a sudden, now, things that up to this point had been tolerated, covered in love, uh, mildly annoying but not a big deal, now all of a sudden these other things become To them, huge things. Why? Because their eye has been jaundiced. And they see everything as being yellow. All because somebody with shifting feet and an evil heart whispered something to them. Here's some other Proverbs on this point. Proverbs 16, verse 28. A dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. Have you ever been on the receiving end of that? It's very, very painful. Here's Proverbs 16 again. Whoever winks his eyes plans dishonest things. He who purses his lips brings evil to past. Two commentators. The scoundrel is someone who works to undermine social and personal relationships for his own benefit. And another trusted commentator, the chief of all that God hates is he who takes a fiendish delight in setting at variance men who stand nearly related. That's a kind of fancy way of saying uh, the, the fiend or the scoundrel is the one who delights in sowing discord. 
And I got to tell you, this has been a surprising discovery for me. When I selected this text a couple months ago to preach it as a part of this series, I thought, oh, seven things God hates. That's kind of a bottom line. That'd be a good thing for us to, to understand. Well, then I got studying this week, and I discovered that the focus isn't so much on the six as it is on the seventh one. That is the point of the text. We know God hates the other six. Nobody debates that. We all get that. Everybody understands that. But you put number seven in there with those terrible sins, the deadly sins, and you realize, wow, sowing discord in the eyes of God is a really big thing. He really, really hates it. Can we ask the question, why does God hate disunity so much? If we could think back to the chart that I had up there a moment. Remember, all of this is about God. God delights in his own glory, delights in his own character. Why would God hate somebody that is sowing discord in a family or in a church or in a ministry? And the answer to that is that God is himself a perfect tri-unity. He is a unity himself. Do you suppose that there's ever been a time in all of you know, d- divine history, if we can talk about it like that, where the Spirit went to the Son and said, you know, I don't like what the Father's doing right now. I think he aims to be the head of the Godhead. But if you and I get together on this, I think that we can keep it from happening. Are you with me? Okay. Has that ever happened? No. There has never been anything within the Godhead but absolute harmony and purity of motive, and serving for the other person and their joy, which is what love is. Perfect love within the triunity of the Godhead. He loves harmony. He loves unity. Have you looked at the creation he made? It's just filled with harmonies, from the galactic to the atom, and smaller than that. Perfect harmony everywhere that God is. Paul writes to the Corinthians that God is not a God of disorder, but a God of of order. And so where the Holy Spirit is active and where people are gathering in the Holy Spirit, there is a oneness and a unity and our hearts are drawn towards each other and we, you know, love covers a multitude of sins because if we got to know all, any one of us, myself included, we're all weird. We all got weird things that we could be mad about, but love covers it. Why? Because we look at Jesus on the cross Loving us in spite of our sins and our failures and, you know, we're not all that and yet he loves us and we look to the cross and we look to the Godhead and then we got to live with one another. And what should we be valuing? What should we be loving? We should be loving what God loves. Think about what Jesus himself prayed in John 17. He says this, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, speaking of his disciples. I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Our Savior praying, think of all the things you could have prayed about. I pray that they have good manners at the table. I pray that they are on time to the worship services. I pray that they uh, are very well orderly in their uh, business meetings or whatever. He could have prayed anything. What does Jesus pray for? The thing that he knew would be the biggest challenge for people like you and me, and that is that we would get along, that we would be unified in purpose and in heart. And he prays, Father, help them to be one. How one? As you and I 
are one. The unity of the church and the unity of the body of Christ is, is built on, based on, the model of the very unity within the Godhead, which is perfect, harmonious unity. Here's Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. And the idea there, oil uh, is a sign of blessing, okay? It's, it's, a, it's a blessing. And, and to have oil like that running down, it's a sign of, of uh, the blessing of God. How good it is when love, and you, when, when love and unity is so strong, we love it so much that we hate discord and the things that cause it and the people that cause it, if I can say it that way. We hate it. We love unity so much that we hate this divisive thing. And as I say that, I'm sure all of you are like, you know, that's really true. That's really true. Because few of us love disunity. It's easy to agree on in, in, in uh, theory. But do we love unity enough to shut down the person who comes to us with the shuffling feet and the crooked finger and wanting to drop a little salacious gossip in our ear about somebody or about something? To say, you know what, I'm not really interested in that. Do we love it that much? This likely is a friend, probably not a stranger. Strangers don't walk up to you and say, hey, can I tell you something about somebody? It's, it's somebody you know. It's somebody in your family. It's somebody in your small group. It's somebody in your church who is, you know, maybe they don't even realize it. They are sowing discord amongst the brothers. How serious is this? Pastor Steve, you're just talking about Old Testament. God's a New Testament God now, and it doesn't matter. Okay, really? Here's Titus. Titus 3. But avoid foolish controversies. We've had a few of those recently. Genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person, person is warped and sinful. He is self condemned, which is another way of actually describing the process of church discipline for somebody who is actively seeking to sow discord amongst the brothers. Pastor Steve, are you saying that you have personally observed people acting in this way? Do you mean to tell me there's people who have tried to split the church during your tenure here? Friends, do not be naive. <laughs> these two eyes and these ears have heard it more times than I would like to tell you. It happens all the time. So for me, this is not a theoretical message. You all might go home and think, oh, well, that was nice and on with our day. This is not a theoretical message for anybody in church leadership. So you're saying I need to hate more. Is that what you're saying, Pastor Steve? Is this a message about hate? Not really. Because here is the key, not just to divisiveness, but the other six sins and any other sin you want to talk about. 
What do we actually need? What is the mechanism of our heart? Here it is. We hate what God hates by loving what he loves. Okay? We hate what God hates by treasuring and valuing what God treasures and values. God loves the brethren. Jesus died personally, shed his blood for every actual Christian in the room, an object of the eternal, passionate love of God. God loves unity. Jesus prayed for unity. He continues as our high priest to pray at the right hand of God for the unity of the brethren. So we've got to love what God loves here. And, and I would just say that the application here is far more, uh, more difficult I would say, this is easy to hear, hard to obey, but that's what the word hate, I think, is so helpful. God hates sowing seeds of discontent, especially when it's petty and interpersonal. What I have observed, I mean, we're not talking about the virgin birth here. (laughs) We're not talking about substitutionary atonement We're not talking about the inspiration of scripture. We're not talking about the resurrection of Jesus. These are not the things that that, uh, divisiveness typically revolves around. Would that we would care and argue about those things more. Instead, it is the petty and the interpersonal. And what I would urge us is to, you don't have to go out and work on hating, okay? We need to go out and work on loving and treasuring what God loves and treasures, and then the hate will happen automatically. (laughs) To love what God loves, to love who God loves, to love how God loves, and then to hate wherever needless and sinful whispers are destroying families and the church. Let's love what he loves so much that we hate what he hates. And that includes shedding innocent blood and lying and these other things. But the point of the text is especially number seven, especially the divisiveness. And I finish with the reminder that when you talk about the love of God, God, there's, there's nothing that God loves more than his son, Jesus. And sinners who have lived a life violating all seven of these things coming to the point where they realize the love of God and the death of Jesus and the offer of salvation to all who trust and believe in him, God loves it when sinners repent and become become followers of Jesus, receive the salvation that he offers. And this includes sinners who spread discord, run to evil, lied, cheated, hated, and murdered. To turn away from those things Loving what God hates to a life now of loving what God loves and therefore also hating what he hates. But loving especially his beloved son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to whom be all the glory. Amen. Amen. And that's your message today.